Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. If you're local to the San Francisco Bay Area, UP Academy, our progressive elementary school, is now enrolling for fall of 2022. So welcome, Rebel Educators, to this episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome, everybody. I'm here today with Andrew Jordan Nance. He is a children's book author and founder of Mindful Arts San Francisco, a volunteer-based organization that provides literacy and arts-based mindfulness instruction to youth. Their mission is to provide mindfulness instruction using storytelling and visual and performing arts activities to cultivate the skill of present moment awareness and improve attention, self-regulation, and social-emotional learning so that all students can have the opportunity to thrive. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. I'm excited to have this conversation. You have such a diverse background, and I'm really curious to hear about your journey. You worked for many years as the director of the New Conservatory Theater Center. And so with a background in theater and acting, how did you get involved with mindfulness and education? Right. Yeah, I had been the conservatory director at the New Conservatory Theater up in San Francisco for about 20 years, uh, actually 18. And I just thought I needed a break. My mom had recently passed and I just thought, okay, you know, life is short. Let's look at something else. But I really didn't know what that was. But I took some classes. One was the science of well-being and one was at the Greater Good Science Center, which does a week-long symposium for teachers to learn about social and emotional learning. It's a really great program. I don't know if they're still doing it, especially with the pandemic. But at any rate, there was an organization there called Mindful Schools, and they started playing these mindful games with us. But what they were, in fact, was theater games that I had done in high school and college and in rehearsals. And so I had this sort of light bulb moment that mindfulness training and theater training were very, very similar. Both invite the participants to be present, to connect with the given circumstances, with their whole heart, mind, and body, so that they can be their most skillful and their most truthful. And it's just that with theater training, you do want to be reactive on stage. Often you hear acting is reacting, but with mindfulness, you don't want to react. You want to pause, take that breath, and be able to respond more wisely rather than react blindly to a given circumstance. So in that moment, I had all these, you know, feels and thoughts. And I thought, wow, I might have been learning mindfulness throughout my whole theater career. So I took a lot of classes online through Mindful Schools, which is a great online resource for anyone. And then a friend of mine said, uh, after I'd taken a bunch of classes, she said, well, you know, I I work with elementary school teachers all the time, teaching them how to use art in the classroom. Why don't I just offer you up as a mindfulness teacher to one or two of them? And 
actually two teachers said that they would love me to come to their class. So I sort of said, okay, but I really didn't know whether I was up for the task or not. But luckily it was a transitional kindergarten class, two of them actually. And I just, you know, learned along the way, made some mistakes, got better as I went, like anything, and then started teaching for the whole year, in fact. And then I wound up starting to use my own theater training in the class, started bringing in games. And then I started to look for mindful stories for the kids. But at that time, eight years ago, I didn't really find any that were really catchy. But I read one to them anyway, and I saw that they didn't really enjoy it. So I thought, you know what? I think I might have a story or two in my head. And so I went home and I actually wrote like four manuscripts in about two hours. And, you know, they needed finessing, obviously. But a few months later, I had a publisher and uh, my first book, Puppy Mind, was born. And that's sort of, in a nutshell, how my mindfulness career began. Talk about having a light bulb moment and then having the courage to follow that all the way through down that path to see where it led and ending up in elementary schools. <laughs> so yeah. you've now built that into a full curriculum, which I'm guessing utilizes a lot of these theater games and theater activities and ways of working and connecting together. Can you talk us through a little bit about that and share some of the ideas from the curriculum and what that looks like? Yes. So uh, the book is called Mindful Arts in the Classroom, and it's a almost 300-page book. There's 22 lessons with a lot of extra games in the back. And basically, we kind of go through all the tenets of mindfulness, which is kindness, breath work, mindful listening, mindful eating, mindful seeing, compassion, gratitude. And each lesson either has a story connected to it or a game connected to it or an art activity connected to it. For example, we might play a gratitude game where we go around and we share what we're grateful for. However, it's a little bit harder than just saying what you're grateful for. You actually have to remember what everyone else before you is grateful for too. So it's a really uh, good listening game as well. and also. When you say out loud what someone else is grateful for, you somehow embody it a little bit. So I also appreciate that. And I think it helps create community. So that's one of the things we do. Uh, we do something called Puppy Mind Games to sort of riff off the book Puppy Mind, where I get a, a few volunteers and they stand or sit in front of the class and they are totally still for one whole minute. They can breathe and blink, but try not to itch or twitch. And if they do, you know, I just have them go back to breathing and, and blinking. And uh, that's a fun one. And then we'll do drawing activities where they might do a connect the dots or they might draw where their puppy mind wanders off to or when their angry lion comes out, what typically makes them mad. So just things like that, just playful ways that they can experience their own inner landscape. So when they do have those big feelings that they're not ashamed of them or scared of them or want to push them away, which is such a typical human reaction is to get frustrated that we're frustrated 
And, you know, and that's just a downward spiral rather than just notice when frustration shows up, tend to it so that we can be skillful with it. It's a very comprehensive book. Like I said, there's 13 stories and it's just, I think it's a lot of fun. And I also think it's full of surprises. So the kids really have a certain sense of what to expect, you know, like we do. I don't call it meditation. I call it focus time. We do focus time at the beginning of every class. Often we'll do a check-in, like a thumb check-in. How are you doing that particular day? How's your heart doing? How's your mind doing? How's your body doing? We might check in by doing a poem that we all know. It's sort of a mantra, if you will, as a way to keep ourselves in the present or keep our mind wandering off. So that's basically the curriculum. It sounds like there's a lot of elements of social emotional learning and developing emotional intelligence along with mindfulness. Yes. So I guess that's that's kind of my next thought. My next question is, you know, when you talk about mindfulness, what what is that definition of mindfulness to you and how does that affect or correlate with that social emotional skills and awareness? Yes. I think of social and emotional learning as this pie, and then mindfulness is a piece of that pie. I really try to talk about the program in terms of social emotional learning skills, and that one of those things we do is mindfulness. And to me, what I say to the kids, and it's ever evolving in my own brain, but what I say to the kids often is mindfulness is the practice of using our breath to focus in on our mind and bodies and hearts so that we can make smart choices. That to me is helpful for the kids. Another one I hear is, you know, mindfulness is just noticing what's happening right now. It's hard for kids to to get the concept of mindfulness without giving them an action. And what I like about the first definition that I gave is that it just tells you what to do. It's mindfulness is about using your breath. So let's take our breath so that we can focus in on our hearts and then our minds and our bodies. So it, it's an actionable task rather than a concept. And then social emotional learning is all about present moment awareness. How am I feeling right now? And without being mean to ourselves, just noticing what sensations show up in the body when anger arises or when sadness arises or when silliness arises or when boredom arises. I often say if we're meditating or doing focus time, I'll say, you know, if you're bored, just notice it. You know, do you feel big or little when you're bored? Do you feel hot or cold when you're bored? Do you feel tense or relaxed when you're bored? Is your mind busy or still when you're bored? And there's really no right answer to that, but it's just a point of inquiry, which is all mindfulness is, is a noticing practice. Mindfulness is taking that deep breath so that we can be in tune with our hearts and our minds and our bodies to make good choices. Yeah. That practice of just noticing the world around us and what's happening, what's happening within us, what's happening externally. and just taking that breath and noticing that moment. It's amazing how little we give value to the task or the, the goal of taking a slow, deep breath throughout our day. You know, I really, just today with the fifth graders, I was inviting volunteers to come up 
And they just would stand in front of the class and just try to take a belly breath. And I have to say about, I don't know, about 10% of them were not able to take a belly breath. We're so conditioned to do that shoulder breathing. You, You know, you ask someone to take a breath and their shoulders go up to their ears. And it's really about breathing into your belly, kind of breathing down to your toes almost. And even a teacher who's sort of an assistant in there, she's like, I can't do it. Can't do it. I've never been able to do it. I take yoga and and they tell me I'm not breathing right. But I brought her up, you know, onto the stage, if you will. And I put a book or she put a book on her belly. And I said, all right, just push the book out with every breath in. And she got it. And I said, all right, now do it the other way. And she was like, no, 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 I don't want to do it the other way anymore. (laughs) I I've got it. I figured it out. But it's such an easy habit to fall back into is those shallow breaths. And I have to say, if folks could just try to take a deep belly breath every half hour or whenever they walk in the door or whenever they have a transition, whenever they sit down for a phone call or at their computer or for a Zoom call, they're going to find that they are able to wake up more and be more skillful. Yeah, absolutely. I think I didn't learn to breathe. I don't think we teach our kids how to breathe. I learned how to breathe when I learned to play the clarinet because we had to breathe and it was proper posture and sit on the edge of your chair and put your feet flat and breathe with your belly. And I remember in those early, early you know, music lessons, that's all we would do is we would sit and we would breathe with our belly <laughs> oh, smart. and figure it out. Yeah. Um, and and now, like you say, you know, it would benefit all of us to stop for a moment and take a deep breath at several times throughout our day. And my watch stops and tells me to breathe. And I actually turned it off because I'm like, shut up, watch. I don't need to breathe right now. I got it. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that's just me not wanting to be told what to do every you know half an hour. But <laughs> and for me, I didn't learn how to breathe correctly until college. My voice teacher at New York University which surprised me that he was so shocked that I didn't know how to breathe because I see it all the time. In every class, there are several kids, if not more, that aren't breathing correctly. And often it's the kids that have trouble self-regulating. And I actually think there could be a study on this because I found that often boys tend to not be able to take belly breaths as easily as girls, you know, and this is totally generalizing, but I work with three-year-olds and I work with 11-year-olds and I see it kind of across the board that it's really challenging for boys in general to take that belly breath. So if Stanford's listening, do a study on that because it would be really curious. On breath and gender and self-regulation? Yes. There you go. That's it. That would be interesting. Yeah. And that would be really easy to fix too. I mean, super easy to fix. You know, if you can just teach kids how to take a belly breath rather than a a shoulder breath or a chest breath, that's life-changing. Well, that's one of the things that you do. So as you go through your time working with students, do you see a shift or do their teachers see a shift in their classrooms and the way they express themselves and relate to others and their self-awareness? Yeah. So I've been at this school for, I think, five, maybe even six years. And I saw a gradual change 
throughout the years. And I thought they were getting better. And, you know, it was hard to kind of gauge. Some weeks it was good. Some weeks I felt like, oh, they're slipping and whatnot. And then the pandemic happened and I went online and I started teaching online to the kids. And I felt like we, you know, I taught them lessons and learned, they learn new things and stuff, but it's really hard to get a sense of whether they're getting it or not online. I don't know if you had that experience or your teachers had that experience. So anyway, so this year coming back in the fall, I started about a month after school started and I was just a little nervous about going back. I thought to myself, have the kids really learned anything? Have they forgotten it all? I was wearing a mask and didn't like that either. And eventually I started wearing a clear mask for a while and that helped me get comfortable. But I walked into the building on the first day and the security guard came up to me and he's not, he's not like this security guard that just sort of stands in a corner somewhere and waits for trouble. You know, he's a really cool guy, goes into the classrooms, works with the teachers, really very approachable. And he said, you know, Mr. Andrew, you're going to see a difference in the kids. They're much more chill. We're rarely taking kids to the office. And I was like, all right, well, we'll see about that. Let's, you know, in my head, I'm thinking. But as the days went on, I saw the same thing, that they just weren't as quick to lose it. And they weren't as quick to lose focus. And they were quicker to be kinder. And I talked to the school social worker and she said, yeah, I really think your work and the work that the teachers are doing around social emotional learning, uh, you know, second step and things like that is really transforming these kids and the teachers because the teachers, of course, are doing the work as well. You know, they're meditating with us, whatnot, and they're doing this, the second step stuff as well. And it's just a process. And it took five years to really see a dramatic difference. But now the kids all help each other. You know, I've seen kids walking down the hall with another kid with their arm around them saying, remember to take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. And so they're really helping each other self-regulate as well. So the long answer is yes, I have seen a change and it's really moving to even think about. Yeah, to see your work in action and to see students actually using day-to-day and moment-by-moment the things that you're helping them with. Yeah. And through the pandemic, I remember coming back into school or when so many schools were coming back to school after the pandemic and seeing news reports of the violence and of students not being able to communicate or talk to each other or work well in a group and not having that self-awareness or group awareness anymore just because we had been so isolated. But to be able to work through that even while being isolated and not see that happen coming back is a statement. Yeah. I would hear those same news reports on the television. And I was so grateful that we weren't seeing that at our school. And it's really about doing the long, slow work of social emotional learning day in and day out in a fun, creative, playful way. And that's really what I set out to do. And and I think we're doing it. I know as we started as a school, we had social emotional learning teachers come in and they would come in and do a lesson and our kids would benefit from that and they would leave and go do their thing and our teachers would move on and do their thing. And we found over time that it really worked the best when we could integrate 
all of that learning and those things of social emotional learning throughout our entire day and weave that's throughout hard. the full culture of the school. And that's when it really made an impact. So how do you go about doing that? How do you kind of train the trainers or work with the teachers so that they can integrate that work when you're not there? Right. Well, we certainly encourage them to, you know, do focus time once a day, do the poem once a day. Sometimes if I do a professional development, I'll ask teachers, how are you already helping your kids self-regulate? And if you give them five, 10 minutes to talk amongst themselves or just popcorn out answers, they'll tell you, oh, I turn off the lights before we take a test or I'll put on some nice music or I've got some little Italian tea lights that I turn on in the room or I've got a peace corner. We all take breaths before we leave the classroom or before we enter the classroom. So I think it's already happening. I just think if teachers can turn up the volume on that a little bit and really sort of take the time to slow down so you can go fast. We've heard that a lot just with anything. If you go slow, the kids will get it. And then you can speed up. And that's, I think, the same thing with social, emotional learning and mindfulness. And I do think it's kind of novel for a new person to come into the classroom for a half an hour once a week, kind of gives the kids a break. They're not looking at the same person for a minute during the week. It's interesting. I love that your school has taken on the task of learning social, emotional learning for the teachers, but sometimes teachers aren't willing to do it. And then the other trick is the turnover factor. A lot of teachers are coming and going. So, you know, you've taught this nice cohort of people one year, but then so-and-so gets another job, et cetera, et cetera. And then you wind up feeling like, how do I get these new teachers on board with the work that we've already been doing as a school? So good on you to make that a priority. Yeah, well, I think the social emotional development and mental health of our students now more than ever has to be a priority. Yeah. We don't have a choice in that if we want to have a healthy society. I think you're right. And parenting is hard. And I feel like the way our world is structured now, parents aren't around a lot for whatever reason. And so it really is up to all the adults in kids' lives to be teaching them ways of navigating the world that are helpful and skillful and kind, just beneficial to everyone. Yeah, I think you're right. And I had a similar conversation with a guest in one of our last episodes who runs an after-school program. And she was talking about that too. And how do we build mindfulness and social emotional skills into the after-school program? Because they're not always getting it in school and we're not spending the amount of time with our immediate or extended family as humans have historically. And so how are we learning these skills and where do we draw all that together and really build not only our own social emotional skills, but how to build community and yeah. how to live together. And I feel like especially here in the Bay Area, we're part of so many different micro groups mm -hmm. that kind of the friendships get really scattered. There's very few people that are your friends that are involved in most of the things that you do. And I guess I look at it from growing up in a really small town. I grew up with the same 128 kids that I went to kindergarten with and I graduated high school with. And those were the same kids that were on the sports teams and in band and in you know 
any of the activities around town. It was that group of kids. And so you build this community and here, like there's the soccer kids and that's not always in schools. So that's a different club and Mm -hmm. that's kids from all over the area. And then there's kids from your school that you go to. And then if you're in theater, then there's theater kids that are again from all over the area. And so there's just very few continuous relationships that we're building consistently. So how do you then build in that community feel and that awareness? Yeah. And that we're all speaking a language that's beneficial to to everyone. Yeah. You know, I think about human existence and we typically we were in small hunter-gatherer groups. And I think everyone was in charge of keeping everyone safe, you know, not even just the kids. And I feel like we sort of lost that a little bit because of just the way our world works. We're so diverse. Like you're saying, we're coming and going and doing all these different things. And there's so much good around that. And yet there's some challenges to overcome as well. Absolutely. So shifting a little bit, I love to hear stories from guests' elementary school years. Since I run an elementary school, I'm always curious, you know, what people remember from that time period in their life. Yeah. Love to hear a story. I wish I had a specific one. Something that comes to mind is that I wasn't a great student. And I often wondered why, because I don't think of myself as someone who's not smart. But I do wonder if, because my parents were both deaf, I wonder if I was somehow kind of stuck in fight, flight, or freeze throughout my childhood. And it wasn't until I got into my teenage years that I was able to sort of drop out of that and be able to learn more efficiently. So that's what came to mind when I read that question. And I I love thinking about that, but no specific story came to mind, but just that sort of colored my elementary school years. I had to go to summer school and I had to go to after school, you know, learning sessions. And I just wonder if that was because I was just on edge having deaf parents. You know, I had to kind of always kind of keep an eye on them and translate for them because my mom could lip read pretty well. My father couldn't. So I was always kind of having to navigate their connection to the hearing world and interpret for them sometimes and make phone calls and things like that. So anyway, that's that's what came to mind for me. Do you think that some of that also is some of the reason why you moved into mindfulness and why this idea of like pausing and taking a break and noticing the world around you came so naturally for you and you were so easily able to follow it and pursue it? I think you might be right. I think the act of speaking with a deaf person is a very mindful act. You have to look them in the eye. If I looked away from my mother while she was speaking with me, she thought I couldn't hear her. So she would take my chin, you know, in a kind way and bring it back to her. And she said, listen to me. I'm like, I am listening. But that taught me, I think, to really focus on people and be attentive and really just notice what people are saying. In fact, I, I do a lot of lip reading without even knowing it. And so with the mask, I think it really reminded me how much I lip read because I can't see people's mouths move anymore. So yeah, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. It really did help me realize the value of truly connecting to another person in a very intentional way. 
Well, thank you, Andrew. How how can people learn more about you or get in touch with you? Sure. So my website is andrewjnance.com or they can go to mindfulartssf.org to learn more about volunteering in the school system. We have trainings three times a year and usually one in October, one in November, and then January. And then we place folks in schools all over San Francisco in the public school system. And then I'm on, I have a YouTube channel and I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Fantastic. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. Upacademysf.com where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators.